getting uncomfortable. Don't fret. It's a good kind of uncomfortable. March 30th, 2022. The inspiration, discomfort. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Susan David, PhD. I heard this as a quote on a podcast, can't remember which one, but the quote stayed with me. One of the things you're supposed to do as a writer is torture your characters, make everything as difficult and challenging as you can. This can be hard for some writers. A lot of writers early in their career go to storytelling to get away from the hard things that life serves up. They make things too easy for their protagonist. They solve too many problems. But the reality is that life is uncomfortable, and when it's uncomfortable enough, we change things. That's what fiction is about, change. And it's from that change that we derive meaning. And meaning, as you all know, is the whole damn game. The Fat Orange Cat. Two something. In your writing today, make something just a little too something for your character. A little too hot, a little too cold. A little too honest, a little too dishonest. A little too loud, a little too quiet. Turn up the dial on some element in your character's experience so it's just enough to be uncomfortable, but not so much that it overwhelms the scene. What happens? How does that affect the overall tone of the scene? And how does it reveal your character's limitations? The trope, subverting Chekhov's gun. In a letter written to a friend, the famed playwright Anton Chekhov wrote, One must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep. I agree with Chekhov, but some writers feel that following the Chekhov's gun principle to the letter means showing your hand before you've played it. After all, if you use everything you introduce, then won't your reader already know what you're going to do before you do it because they see the gun lying there? Well, sure. And also, not necessarily. What's important is that you put the gun to use. How you put that gun to use, it's really up to you. Can you have someone shoot someone else? Sure. But what if the gun was sitting there the whole time and your reader presumed someone was going to get shot, but instead someone takes it apart and finds etchings inside that carry the answer to a mystery you've set up? I don't think the gun has to necessarily go off. It just needs to play a role in the story. What role it plays is entirely your call, and you can pull off some amazing sleight of hand by subverting the reader's expectation of how the gun is going to be used narratively. The question, planning structure. I'm definitely not a pantser and need help, methods, tactics, planning the anchor scenes. I have only ever written short stories, and I pants these. However, with this book-length story I'm attempting, I know I won't be able to get away with that. I need to get the narrative arc and the anchor scenes planned, or the whole thing will devolve into a squishy, boring mess. I'd love to learn a strategy-slash-method for planning this book. Whiteboard, sticky notes, I'm open to anything you suggest. And thank you, former pantser. Dear FP, This is such a fun question for me. I love delving into strategies for planning out a story, although myself can't do it. I have to pants my way through everything and then fix it on the back end. Your way of planning up front looks so much easier to me. But that's the thing. You have to know what works for you and what works for other people might not work for you. So I'm going to give you some frogs to kiss and then you can kiss them and decide how you want to do it. If you respond to controlled chaos... 
Grab a few packets of post-it notes and clear off a section of wall. Designate one color for each act and then a separate color entirely for your anchor scenes. Write down a brief description of what happens in the scene and stick it on the wall where you want it to go. You can move things around and rearrange and get a picture of how everything is going to work out. For your anchor scenes, these are the big moments that significantly escalate the central narrative conflict. Use the alternate color, no matter what act those fall into. That will give you a visual sense of the pacing. For more on structure and anchor scenes, be sure to grab a copy of How Story Works. Another visual way to go if you don't have free wall space is to set up a string and use clothespins to attach colored index cards to represent your scenes. If you respond to digital playgrounds, Scrivener has a corkboard feature that's very similar to this strategy, but you keep everything inside the program so it's not all over your wall. You can rearrange the order of the scenes and make notes for the future and also add in all kinds of notes about your characters and setting and etc. If you like to write scenes out of chronological order and just assemble everything later, Scrivener is also well worth the money. If you respond to daily goals. My good friend C.J. Barry used to plan her entire novel scene by scene in a spreadsheet and then start knocking out the scenes one by one. She's a computer science person and her organized mind responded really well to that kind of thing. You could break out an Excel sheet into separate worksheets for each act and then color code your anchor scenes to keep track of them in there and then just knock a scene out per day until you're done. There are many methods to the madness of planning. Kiss your frogs and let us know how it went. The Practical. If nothing we do matters. This weekend, Ian ran his bi-weekly Buffy Angel discussion for his Patreon supporters, who can participate. Anyone can watch. The episode up for discussion? Only probably the most important episode of the entire series, Epiphany. This episode is so powerful because it encapsulates the core philosophy of the show and my core philosophy of life in this simple line. If nothing we do matters then all that matters is what we do. And who showed up to talk about it? A bunch of Ian's supporters and the writer of the episode and that line, Tim Minear, who is also one of Ian's supporters. Tim says a lot of really smart things. I definitely recommend watching the discussion for everybody listening. There is a link in the uh, newsletter to that discussion. Even if you're not an Angel fan, but the thing that's been rumbling around in my brain is the way Tim is so lovingly dismissive of what he did, commonly referring to his life's work as bubblegum. Afterward, Ian and I discussed how funny it was that we both dedicated a good chunk of our professional lives to talk about the work that the writer of that work viewed as basically inconsequential. But it makes sense. If you don't view your work as basically inconsequential, creating that work becomes a weight that is just too heavy to lift. And if, once you've created something, you view it as a staggering work of genius, you're just getting, as Ian likes to put it, high off your own farts. It's done. It's created. It may be great, but it is also over. The only concern a writer needs to have is what's next. Make the thing, drop the thing, move on to the next thing. That kind of assembly line writing is what I aspire to do as I shift away from giving most of my productive hours to a day job and toward giving them to my life's work. Yeah, it's my life's work, but I can't think about it as being too important, or I won't be able to do it. Just another one of life's little ironies. So, what's next for you? What we leave behind. It's all stories. Saturday, April 2nd, 2022. Dear writer, 
I remember when I learned that memory isn't reliable, that every time we go back over a memory, we change it. And then we remember the changed version until finally, who knows if our memories are even real or not. As someone who grew up in a family where reality was whatever my mother decided it was from day to day, I didn't like the idea of memories being so easily manipulated, so inadvertently altered. I didn't like not knowing what was real and what was not. Today is my father-in-law's birthday. Now, when I say my father-in-law, that's not entirely accurate. His son is my kid's father, and to this day, my kid's dad is one of the most treasured people in my life. But the breakup had some rough patches. While my kid's dad and I managed to repair our relationship, not all things that were broken in that process have been repaired. Not with his dad, though. This man never had to forgive anything. He was as kind and loving to me after the divorce as he was before. I remained his daughter, even though I wasn't married to his son anymore. In my family of origin, there wasn't love, let alone unconditional love. My father-in-law's unconditional love, not tolerance, but love, was so shocking to me that I've never really been sure what to do with it. I have never truly accepted it. I have at every turn expected him to one day stop being so kind, stop including me in family things, stop giving me a place to stay when I was in town, stop calling me on Christmas and Mother's Day. He never did. And now that I actually think about it, it was weird of me to expect that because I knew better. I knew him better. I think that because I grew up with people who weren't able to love me, I expected everyone to stop loving me eventually. That is a poor me thing. It was just how the world worked from my perspective. If this man had rejected and dumped me, I wouldn't have thought twice. I had to think twice about him not doing that. And this is why everyone needs therapy. Anyway, as you receive this letter, I will be driving to Arizona to visit this wonderful man for what I hope will not be the last time. I hope that by the time my kid's dad and I get there, the doctor's reports will be rosy and we'll be helping him get out of bed and go home. I hope for that. While I sit here in the space between what I hope and what I fear, I'm going to tell you some stories about this man. Stories I've been telling for years, walking over that terrain with my memory so much that I can't entirely guarantee their accuracy. But I can tell you this. What I'm about to tell you may not be entirely factual, but I guarantee you, it's all absolutely true. Story number one, the Gila monster. My father-in-law is a world-renowned herpetologist. He knows snakes and lizards better than probably anyone else anywhere. I can almost guarantee that if you've ever had a cable package that had a nature channel and you've lazily skimmed through the channels, you've seen him at some point or another. That happened to me not long after his son and I left Arizona for Alaska. The first day in the new apartment, I skipped through the channels with my infant daughter on my lap and laughed when I heard my father-in-law's voice. Hey, baby, I said, bouncing the baby on my lap and pointing at the television. It's Grandpa. Anyway, here is the Gila Monster story as well as I can remember it. One day, this man was giving a demonstration at an elementary school, and he brought a Gila Monster. It's a very pretty lizard, all black and pink and alternating almost geometric patterns, and it is one of the only venomous lizards in the world. As the story goes, he was showing a Gila monster to a bunch of kids, and as he was showing them the teeth, the thing whipped around and bit his hand. One of the things about a Gila monster is that once they bite, that's it. They're locked on. 
He had to get away from the kids so that his graduate student could hit the thing with a rock and kill it so they could pry the jaws open. Meanwhile, the effects of the poison were taking my father-in-law down. He says it's the most painful thing he's ever experienced. As they're loading him into the ambulance, he looks over and sees that the EMT is flipping through a book to get more information on the injury. EMTs see a lot of things, but they don't deal with Gila monster bites too regularly, as the lizards are pretty slow and not going to bite you unless, you know, you put your hand in its mouth. My father-in-law tried to talk to the EMT to give him the information he needed, but the EMT kept looking in the book until my father-in-law finally told him, Hey, I wrote that book. Just listen to me, and it's all going to be fine. Story number two. Snake in a clear plastic tub. In every house my father-in-law has lived in since I've known him, there have been snakes just everywhere. In glass terraria around the house and little plastic bins with holes poked in. If you opened a cabinet in his house, you did so at your own risk. But the dangerous ones, he kept those in a room lined with rows of glass cages. And when you go in that room, or turn on the light, or even make too much noise from another part of the house, that room rattles. Because of all the rattlesnakes. He, of course, knows everything about snakes and is not bothered at all by the rattlers. I am, well... Let's just say I'm not a snake person. And when my kid's dad first took me in that room, he told me the story about the time he was in there with his dad, who was dropping a mouse into the cage for the rattler when the snake went for him. My father-in-law was a hair's breadth away from being bit. And if my kid's dad hadn't called out, he might have been. This is a story that these two wonderful guys find funny and I find absolutely terrifying. I never went in the rattler rooms if I could avoid it. And the one Thanksgiving that my father-in-law let a Gila monster just roam free throughout the room, the Thanksgiving when I was about five months pregnant, I sat cross-legged on the chair the whole time. In 2019, when I brought my youngest out to Arizona to get her set up at the university where my father-in-law taught for many years before retiring, I stayed with him and his wife. One afternoon, he walked in and showed me this little plastic tub in which a cute little baby snake with red, white, and black stripes was poking its head around. He'd found it somewhere, or someone else had found it and brought it to him, and there it was, just sitting on the coffee table between us while we chatted about various things. I kept my eye on it, wary of its escape, but he was nonchalant as always. I remember him telling me that there was an order of red, white, and black stripes that was safe, and one that was venomous. This was the venomous kind. Don't worry, it's just a baby, he said. Even if he tried to bite you, he probably wouldn't be able to break the skin. I am not comforted by that, I said with exaggerated tension in my voice. And then we both laughed. Story number three, unconditional. After I divorced my kid's dad, I married a bad guy. This guy was charming and smart, but also cruel and controlling, manipulative and emotionally abusive. A lot of what he did was behind closed doors, and he did everything he could to drive a wedge between me and pretty much everyone who loved me. My kid's dad and his dad, however, were protected because of their relationship with the girls. My father-in-law was always really nice to that guy, and if he ever saw anything wrong or was worried about us, he never said a word. But when it all fell apart, at a time when I was judging and blaming myself for letting it happen, my father-in-law called me. He knew that my business was tied up with that dude and that everything had been destroyed. I had no business, no partner, and I had no idea how I was going to keep a roof over my kid's head. I was wandering through the aisles of the little grocery store in town, still heartbroken and in shock, when the phone rang. I just want you to know that I'm so sorry about what happened, he said. I love you. If you need money, let me know. I cried and thanked him and then continued to zombie my way through the next few months. I got a job. I started a media company. 
I never took him up on his incredibly kind offer, but neither did I ever forget that he had made it. I also never told him what it meant to me that he had called. Here I had married a bad guy who had emotionally abused me and his granddaughters, and there was never a second of judgment, not a moment of, well, that's what you get for divorcing my son. My second husband was riddled with red flags, and I was blaming myself hard, but my father-in-law? He was never interested in blame. He was just kind and loving to me the way he was to everyone, no matter what. His love is truly unconditional, his kindness inexhaustible. I hope my father-in-law is going to get well, but the day will come when all of us will not get better. When people leave us, all that's left are the stories, and my father-in-law left me with these stories and more that I get to tell over and over. They're a wonderful gift, and I have the honor of carrying them in my heart and pulling them out from time to time to let my memory run with them as it will, even though I know that each time I may be changing those memories bit by bit from what actually happened. The only other option is not to remember at all, and that's not really an option, is it? Everything L.